0: If you are behind me, could you just scoop back a little bit just to make me feel a little less uh, claustrophobic. If uh, Welcome. Didn't the kids do a great job? Man, that is awesome. We appreciate it. Hey, buddy. And uh, I am so thankful. And their retreat, by the way, is next weekend. No, it's this weekend. It is this Friday and Saturday. So be much in prayer for them. Uh, parents, just remember that if you don't believe what they say about us, we won't believe what they say about you at the, at the retreat and they will come back very, very tired and it'll be a very, very good event. I remember the first one we did years and years and years ago and we, the kids led worship and, and these people are still in our church, Mikey Caldwell and, and she's now, uh, Kelsey Tackett, but, um. They came back and they gave testimony of how that was really the first time that they experienced hearing God speak to them in worship. And so it was really just kind of some some fun stuff happens there, but also some good spiritual stuff happens there as well. Well, tonight we're going to continue our journey through the book of Revelation. We are in, uh, going into the dark, uh, we are in some very heavy, heavy chapters Chapter 14, 15, and 16. No matter what position you hold, I will not make you happy tonight. If you are a premillennialist, and if you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. If you're an amillennialist, or even if you're a postmillennialist, I am not going to make you happy tonight. Nor is that my intent. My intent as we have gone through this, especially on Wednesday nights, is to go through it with the idea of what did it mean, how would it have made sense... To the original author, to the original audience that John wrote it to in 95 A.D. from the little island of Patmos, and so what would what would be his cultural background, his historical narrative? What was going on in that period, in that culture that would make all of these visions? You know, last week we talked about the dragon with uh, ten heads and and. Uh, horns on each head. I mean, just coming up out of the sea, and his tail was so big, he swiped a third of the stars down from the sky. I mean, that is a huge, huge creature. We've talked about trumpet judgments, which was totally, totally depressing. And the good news is, is that things are not always as they seem in this world. And that is great news. Because the overarching, the overarching message of the book of revelation is one of encouragement and here's the encouragement that no matter how bad things seem like they are out of control here god is still in control just because there are there are pockets or, or even broad areas or swaths of chaos does not mean that god is not sovereign and He is not in control and so tonight we're going to look at chapter 14. And you're going to see the words come up on the screen uh, to the text. And I'm not going to read every text. Uh, it's in the New Living Translation uh, that I'm using. Because I think that uh, apocalyptic literature, and that's what the book of Revelation was written in, that's highly symbolic. I think it flows a little better when you read a thought-for-thought translation than a, than a, a literal word for word translation so here we go in chapter 14 you have uh, the first set of verses and he says then I saw by the way from Revelation chapter 12 verse 1 to Revelation chapter 15 and verse 4 it's easy to see the seven different visions that John had or was allowed to see because they all start with this phrase and then I saw so if you wanted just to make a simple outline of those four or five chapters, all you got to do is look for it, and then I saw, or then I looked, or behold, I looked, and you will see what John saw. And so he said, and I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and the Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard the sound from heaven like the roar of the mighty ocean waves and the, and the rolling of the loud thunder. It was like the sound of many a harpist playing together. Now, by the way, this is the, one of the few times in the book of Revelation or anywhere where it's alluded to that, we, that there are harps in heaven. Now, when I was a kid growing up, I did not think heaven was a very exciting place, because if all you did was hang out on a cloud and play a harp, did not sound like a lot of fun to me. But there are three passages from here going forward that have the harp in it. However, you and I don't have the harp. It's given to a specific group of folks or beings there in heaven. And a great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God and before the four living beings. We've already talked about that. And the 24 elders. We've already talked about that. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And they had kept themselves pure as virgins following the Lamb wherever he went. Well, there's some... Some things you've got to kind of make your mind up and kind of decide. And the book of Revelation has already helped us on a few of these things. Verse 1 says, Behold, I saw a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now the lamb is clearly Jesus Christ, the lamb slain. And that was John's favorite way to refer to Jesus in the book of Revelation or the book of the apocalypse was Jesus, the lamb of God, or the lamb slain. And so John... ...would always use words associated with life... ...even though he would use lamb slain. So here you see the lamb, Jesus Christ, standing. He's not in a tomb. He's standing, fully functioning. He's standing on Mount Zion. On Mount Zion. Well, there's several different beliefs about what Mount Zion is. Some believe that it's uh, just kind of synonymous with Mount of Olives. Some believe that it's Jerusalem... Some people believe it's, it, it's heaven and the, and the city, which is, you know, and by the way, you'll see it in the New Living Translation, where the city has no temple in it because the city itself is a temple to the glory of God, all right? The whole thing is there and Jesus' life and glory radiates that place because he's standing there in his city. And so I believe that the the most basic translation would be that this is referring referring to that new Jerusalem, the city of God, where the 144,000 and all who believe in him, whether Jew or Gentile, live with him forever and ever. And so that's the 144,000. Those are, they're referenced again in Revelation chapter 7 and depending on your eschatological viewpoint, you can either say this is the second group of 144,000 because they're virgins and it says that there in the last verse on that slide or you can say, you know what, John is just simply referencing an already acknowledged fact that these 144,000 represent those who have been saved Uh, from by God's grace and they have not defiled themselves in emperor worship or idolatry or sin of any kind and so there before me was the lamb standing on Mount Zion with 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads and I heard a sound from heaven and by the way this is just the rumbling I think of of just the angelic choir and the four and twenty elders and the, and the four living creatures and the hundred and forty four thousand the great throne of heaven that sing together. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard a mass choir before. Um, I was at Liberty University years and years and years and years ago at a conference and they had a choir. I think it was like two hundred and fifty people, and it was it was huge. It was the biggest choir I'd ever heard. And man. They, they didn't need microphones. They filled the place. This choir, this gathering... ...is tens of thousands and tens of thousands. It's not a quarter of one thousand. It is, it is an untold number that sing praise and glory. And they sing a new song before the throne. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 that had been redeemed. Basically, he's just saying that this is a unique group of people. These are those who have been tested, tried, gone through tribulation, persecution. They They have not backed down from the gospel message nor their faith in Jesus Christ. They stood strong, and it represents the followers of Jesus Christ. And the glory is given to God for their faithfulness and that is so so key and they have been purchased from among the people of the earth and a special offering to God to the lamb and they have told no lies and are without blame let me tell you how godly these folks are and how faithful they have been in their relationship with Jesus Christ when it says that they followed the lamb these are those who did not defile themselves that was, simply means they were not led away by temptation. When given the choice, they chose right. When given the choice to stand up or sit back, they stood up. When given the choice to proclaim the name of Jesus, or just to kind of sit on it and, and protect themselves and their livelihood and their, their families, they risk everything. They were like all in. So when it talks about them being blameless, when it talks about they told no lies, it's more than just they did not tell falsehood. It was that they embraced everything about the truth, capital T, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And they invested their heart and their life in him and everything about him. They followed. Matter of fact, verse 4 uh, says, and they follow the lamb wherever he goes. The word follow there is akin to the word minnow, which means to abide. And it, and it doesn't mean that it, 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 it's a different word. Bob, would you stand up for just a minute? I want to I illustrate this using Bob Carter, ladies and gentlemen. Give Bob a nice, a nice round of applause. Now, just stand out here in the middle, Bob. You don't have to, have to take about two steps back. And uh, don't trip, don't fall. You don't have to do anything else. Now, am I, am I standing with Bob? In our culture, we would say, maybe it's kind of close. In New Testament days, when you use the word "meno" M-E-N-O, John uses it in the Gospel of John 15 times, it doesn't mean that we're in the neighborhood. It doesn't mean that we're close by. Here's what the word means. The word means to stand with. It's it's not here. It's here. It's close. (laughs) It it, it is (laughs) close. All right? I mean, it is like up in your grill. I'm uncomfortable, you know? I got this big bubble, man. I I mean, big (laughs) bubble. But that's not minnow. That's not abiding. This is abiding. And so when the scriptures say that they... Followed him wherever he went, it's not saying that they followed him afar off like a lot of us do. Wasn't they were casual Christians? They were so close to Jesus that wherever he went, they were in step with him. And whenever he moved, just go ahead and move. They moved with him. And wherever he went, they went. They abided. Thank you, Bob. And so that's the idea, is that they were without blame. They were purchased, they were sold out, they remained and abided with Christ. And I love the phrase, they followed the Lamb wherever they went. Matter of fact, there's five characteristics from verse 4 down to the end of verse 5 that describe these 144,000. Uh, and basically, is they did not defile themselves. And, and the scriptures say with women, the idea is that they just didn't commit sin. Well, it's not just talking about the specific sin of adultery, but in John's day, sensuality, just like in our day, sensuality was rampant and out of control. And so he's using that to say they were faithful. They followed the Lamb. We just talked about that. That was the second quality of these 144,000. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and of the Lamb. The practice of the first fruits. Is really cool because if you were the firstborn, all right, and the first fruits, the firstborn son, and the first fruits of your offering, or your, of your, not offering, of your uh, garden, of your crops, of your cattle, of your camels, whatever you grew back in that day, it was consecrated, it was set apart to God. And so what he's just simply driving the point across is that these were those who were committed, consecrated to the God. No lie was found in them in their mouth. No denial of the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, that He is who He says He is. They validated that. And that they were blameless. The word blameless has the idea of treachery or treason. They did not commit treason with their lips. Their life and their speech Matched up their walk and their talk, matched up, and they were blameless. And then you move on to verse six. And my eyes are a little bad, so I can't really find the little six on that. But I know it's up there. And it starts with, "Then I saw another angel flying in midair." All right. And by the way, I'm reading off my notes. I'm reading out the NIV. You have the NLT, or the N- yeah, the NLT on the screen. I apologize for, for that. But then there's this other angel flying through the sky, And now you have three angels that just kind of appear... ...after you just have chapters 11, 12, and 13... ...where it is just destruction and heartache... ...and, and a third of the world being burned up... ...and a third of the world's vegetation being gone... ...and a third of the world's water supply... ...fresh water supply being being just done away with... ...and a third of the world's salt water oceanic marine life being done away with. And it is heavy because it's judgment after judgment after judgment. And you get through those terrible times of judgment, much like the plagues of Egypt, where God would use them to try to turn the hearts of the Egyptians back to himself. And one of the saddest commentaries or the saddest verses in the book of Revelation is that you get to the end of all of that and it says, and they still refused to believe in God. And so now you have three angels that come up flying in air. And they, uh, they carry three things. The first angel announces God's victory on the earth. And it's a joyous time. It's a celebration time. It's a hallelujah time. Where the, where the host of heaven get to rejoice. I've, I've tried to find an equivalent for this in our day, and I, I don't, the only thing I can come up with is, you guys know that I'm an Ohio State fan, and I hate using anything that even seems like I remotely care about the team up north here, but if you got and I do like going to the big house to watch a football game, I really, really do, with 115,000 of my closest friends, I really love that, standing like this for four hours, just Man, I I really do. I I love going to the big house, so if you got tickets, I can't go Saturday. I'm busy, but uh, next week, though, if you want to come to my house and watch the game, I'd love to watch it with you. But anyway, every time they do something good, what song do they play? When there's a touchdown, when there's a field goal, when there's an extra point, when there's a turnover, when they stop the ball on fourth and one, I mean, what do they play? Hail to the victors. So help me, I want to kick that tuba player right in the team. And it's over, and it's over, and it's over. And what are they doing? Man, they're cheering on their team. Hey, good news. Some great and grand has happened. Each of these angels comes in and is like, hey, good news. You know, hail to the victor. But it's not you of them; It's Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. But in verse 1, he's standing there in front of the throne, alive and well, ruling and reigning. And so the first angel comes in and says, oh, we hail to the victor, King Jesus. We give God glory for his victory on earth. The second angel comes in right after that and says, "Uh, we praise God and give Thank God for his victory over uh, what many believe, imperial Rome and, and the forces of evil. The third angel comes in and and just, man, gives God glory because... He ultimately destroys the entire world system of evil to where evil is completely done away with and Jesus Christ is glorified. And if you are a first century early church Christian and you are struggling with persecution, I mean, you are this physically being attacked, your livelihood is being threatened, your economic welfare is weighing in the balance. This is good news. Because John is reminding us that no matter how bad it gets here, things are not as they seem. God is in control. And he's already defeated Satan and his followers and the Antichrist and the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth. We talked about that last week. And so he proclaimed all of this. To those who live on the earth, every nation, every tribe, every language, and every people, praise Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that great news? And so here's what they said. They sang the song, and it's in kind of verse 7, and they would have these short little, probably short little praise choruses that they sang over and over and over again. And he said, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and earth and sea and the springs of water. That was a first century way of saying he made everything. He made everything. The sun, the moon, the stars, and everything in between. Everything that, you know, bigger than that. And everything in quantum theory that goes smaller than that. He made everything. He's the creator of all. Well... Let me point out to you the second angel. We already told him that, that the second angel... ...talks about the, the doom of Rome. He comes in and right there at the very bottom of the page... ...another angel followed him through the sky shouting... ...Babylon is fallen, the great city is fallen... ...because she made all the nations of the world... ...drink the wine of her passionate immorality. Then the third angel came and followed them saying... ...anyone who worships the beast or the statue... ...remember that was a statue that was kind of empowered... and in, uh, in ...an inanimated object that was able to, to speak... And who accepts his mark on the forehead and the hand must drink the wine of God's anger. And it has been poured in full strength into God's cup of wrath. And they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever and ever. This is one of the first mentions of eternal punishment in the book of Revelation. And you can kind of see that imagery that's right there. They will be tormented. They will be tormented. Maybe this refers to Christians who were being burned at the stake, which was made popular by Nero. Maybe it's a reference to when Nero dipped Christians in wax and used them and lit them as street lamps along the main streets of Rome back in that first century. Maybe it was when they filleted people Christians alive. You have seven layers of your skin, and they would fillet the skin, and they would they would cut it. I'm red today in strips, and then they would throw their skin on the blazing fire. Some were burned, boiled, not burned. Some were boiled in pots of water until they died. Some were burned on coals with a with a pan between them and that hot coals and they literally roasted to death. So when he references fire, those early Christians were well aware that it was an object of their pain and suffering. But I want you to notice that the Christians' pain and suffering does not last forever and ever. But the unbeliever. The Non Christian, their suffering lasts forever and ever because they'll live without Christ and without the victor and without God and, and his glory. Well, go to verse 13. Verse 13, he says, I heard a voice. Oh, by the way, verse 12 says, and it's almost like John says, Okay, wait a minute, I, can't, I gotta take a step back here. Just this is getting really intense. Not only for what you've just seen, but for what you're about to see. And so he says this in the, new, uh, in the New International Version. It reads this way. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Basically, what he is saying is don't give up. Don't give up. No matter what you're facing, don't give up. You're struggling maybe in your marriage, don't give up. You're struggling in your faith, don't give up. You're struggling maybe with economics or your job or certain relationships. He's saying don't give up. Follow. Picture Bob there. Abide, stay with, follow Jesus wherever he goes. And no matter what you go through here one day, it will be worth it all. And for those who seem to have it all here, in the end, they will lose everything. So he's encouraged. As a matter of fact, the next verse even goes on and says, And then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this down. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, the Spirit says the Spirit. They will rest from their labor and their deeds will follow them. Now, let me see if I can give a word picture uh, of this. Okay, all right. Can, can I get you to stand one more time with me? And, and James, will you stand? Doris, will you just stand? And so here's three, di- three different people, and as far as I know, you guys don't know each other. I know Bob. Okay, you know Bob. Everybody knows Bob. What about Bob? Everybody knows Bob, all right? But sometimes we think that we live our life and it doesn't have any effect on anybody else around us. That phrase can lead us to believe that and their works do follow them. That there is this grand procession of not just these three, but all of us who know Jesus Christ. All of us who follow him. That somehow our faithfulness encourages the faithfulness of someone else. Somehow our light kind of sheds and sends light into the darkness. And so that when we go to heaven, all of a sudden we don't see hundreds of billions of Maybe that's too big of a number. We don't see billions and billions and billions of people who lived independent lives, and the only thing they had in common was faith in Jesus Christ. But we see lives connected by faith in Jesus Christ, all used for God's glory and His purpose and His honor. Isn't that exciting? To know that what you do, thank you guys, you can be seated, may be called upon again. I'm not sure, but isn't that exciting to know that your life isn't wasted? That God uses the good that you do. He extends grace to where you mess up. And he allows all of us to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. To make a difference in somebody's lives in a certain area at a certain time for a certain purpose. So that we can reach as many people with the gospel of Jesus Christ sending that light into darkness. Before finally that last judgment falls And history comes to an end. And that is where everything just starts accelerating towards. In chapter 14 in verse 14, you have another one of those division or vision marker things. When he said, I look. And now you find that uh, here is obviously a, a reference to God in heaven. And he is... Let me go one more. And... We'll just stop right there. All right? And so now you see a picture of God, or Jesus Christ, and he's sitting on the throne, and he comes. But he's not a lamb this time. He, he's not the warm little fuzzy, you know, lamb. He comes, if you look at verse 14, with a crown on his head, and all of these signs refer to divine judgment, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now, I'm not a country boy, and I'm not a farmer. But all throughout the Old Testament, almost every time it is used in a non agrarian phrase or wording, in other words, in agriculture, it is used in terms of judgment. And so it was an image of judgment. Just like if, if, if you were to see an Old English D on a ball cap, you would know that is the, the Detroit Tigers. When they saw a sickle, they knew, because of their culture and their heritage and their day, and from the Old Testament they had, that it was judgment. And it was swift, and it was severe. And, and it just comes. And another angel came out of that um, temple, and called with a loud voice, Take your sickle, reap Because the time of reaping has come to the harvest of the earth. Now, there's two reapings. One is the harvest of the earth, and one is the reaping of grapes of wrath. That great John Steinbeck novel, Grapes of Wrath. The first one has to do with those who are saved. And then the other one has to do with the grapes of wrath, deal with those who are unbelievers, You have the same sickle and the same Lord, and you have both elements involved, and that's very similar to a parable Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 15, when someone came in in the middle of the night and they sowed in tares, bad weeds basically, among the good wheat, and some of the workers wanted to go in and just sift everything right then. And, and Jesus talked about a great harvest day where there would be a separation of the wheat from the tares. Well, that's the basic idea here, except he's saying that this is the harvest of the earth, the faithful, and those grapes that are that are unfavourable. And then he uses several expressions or gives several images. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a shard a sharp sickle, It's still another angel who had charge of the fire that came from the altar. Let me just tell you this. The word fire is used 24 times in the book of Revelation. 23 out of the 24 times that it is used, it is always used in a scene of God's judgment. It is always used in a scene of God's judgment. It just gets heavier and heavier as it builds. And so, you find that, oh my goodness, I'm not even going to get through chapter 14. I've got to get through chapter 14. And so the angel swung his simple and, and, and they gathered everybody. And then look at verse 20 and 21. Let's see if I can get 20 and 21. And the angel swung his sickle over the earth and loaded the grapes into the great winepress of God's wrath. And the grapes were trampled into the winepress outside the city. By the way, the great white throne judgment takes, outside, takes place outside the city of God takes place outside of Zion. And, and so it takes place. And the blood flowed from the winepress in a stream about 180 miles long and about as high as a horse's bridle. Well, I'm not very equestrian, so I, I googled how high is a horse's bridle. It's about four and a half feet high. Might as well be ten feet high if you're my height, but it's, it's that height. And so then I just kind of started Googling. And then there are people who try to figure out blood flow. And if it's 180 miles long and four and a half feet or 4 feet high, how many people would have to die? How much blood would have to be discharged from human bodies to make a, if it was literal... And anytime you hear a statistic in the book of Revelation, you got to decide is it literal or is it a statistic? Or is it a statistic or is it a symbol? But if you take it as literal, which most premillennials would do, then you are talking about hundreds of millions of deaths in this place. And the thing is, it doesn't have to happen. God is still on the throne. There is opportunity for people to repent. God's grace would would cover their sins even in in this late date. Let me cover verse chapter 15 real quick. It's divided into two sections. The first four se- the first four words for Verses basically describe the marvelous scene that's in heaven and it's kind of like this this big build up to praise and again there's harps, there's singing, there's choirs, there's the four and twenty elders and there's praise and, it, and it's just one more opportunity to let us know that God's not responding out of hatred, out of intolerance. He's not responding. He's responding out of love and holiness and grace. He's responding out of his character and so they sing great and marvelous are your deeds O lord god almighty just as true in your ways king of the nations who will not fear you lord and bring glory to your name for you alone are holy and all the nations come after you then you get to verse seven and it resumes now the seven bold judgments the final seven judgments, you have six seal judgments and then the seventh seal opened the seven trumpet judgments. Then you had the six trumpet judgments and the seventh trumpet judgment opened the s- bowl judgments and now you get to the seven bowl judgments where it is just, just. A matter of fact, the vision that John received has been called by many uh, wild and Fantastic. Because of its nature. By the way. If you read through. What he was praised for. And the four living creatures. And the bowls. And then the plagues that were to come. You'll find that the bowls were used. In the Old Testament. In connection with the priestly duties. In the tabernacle. Often it was associated with prayers. And you would go to. Uh, the altar of of incense, and there the prayers would rise up to God with the visual visual imagery of the incense so that it would reaffirm to the nation of Israel that God hears and answers their prayers. And some Bible scholars believe that this is referring to God as answering all the prayers of all of the Christians who have ever prayed for deliverance, for protection, for God's favor, for God's blessing in times of trial and persecution and heartache. Well, chapter 15 is kind of like the breath before you get to chapter 16. Chapter 16, and we're just going to fly through it because I got five minutes and I think I can do it. There are seven judgments. The first judgment... The first bowl is in verse 1 and 2. And I don't think I'm going to be able to find everything. You're just going to have to trust me that it's in there. All right? The first bowl that poured out on the land is ugly, festering sores that broke out on the people. The second bowl judgment was that the sea turned into blood. I told you about watching this um, History Channel show, Doomsday Countdown to the End of the World or something like that. And I did not know this, but there is 10 days on, on any given time across this earth, there are 10 days, if the world's water supply goes bad, we have 10 days to 14 days of potable drinking water on this earth. So when it talks about the fresh water was affected and the, uh, the sea was turned to blood, and the second angel in verse 3, and the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers, he is talking and an, an, a, uh, something that affects the entire structure of nature. The ecology of, is that the right word? The ecosystem, I think that's the word I'm looking for, the ecosystem will be totally stripped of one of its foundation elements, water. And then if you don't get water, well, I'm telling you what, you're going to get unhappy real quick. And there's just no more water. The fifth, and the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch the people with fire. And then, and then they were sealed with intense heat. And then you find that after the fourth and the fifth bowl of judgment, you find these phrases, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl. On the throne of the beast. And the kingdom, the world system, the world kingdom, the world was plunged into darkness. Psalm Revelation chapter 2 and verse 13 identifies that beast as Satan's throne or this place as Satan's throne. And then the sixth angel pours out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and the waters dry up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And as as the water is drying up, There are three impure spirits that look like frogs. This is like on the sci-fi channel, isn't it? There are three impure spirits that look like frogs that come up out of the mouth of the dragon. The come up out of means to vomit, to regurgitate. And if I had a frog in me, I'd puke that thing out too. Amen? And so they vomit this out, and these impure spirits go around the world, And they satanically oppress and impress, dilute and sway and influence the armies of the world, the armies of the world, together to battle. And it's called the great day of God Almighty. Others call it the battle of Armageddon. You, you kinda have one of those get your breath moments again. Verse fifteen says, Look, I come as a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed and has and so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Well, what's he talking about there? You go back to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 18 with the Laodicea church who was wealthy and thought that they were, you know, had it all together and they were in one of the fashion centers of Asia Minor at that day. And God said, listen, it doesn't matter what you got on your body inside. You are spiritually naked and shameful. And he says, I know your deeds. I know everything you've done. I know your heart. And then they, the impure spirits, in verse 16, they gathered the kings together in the place that in the Hebrew is called Armageddon. And then for the first time, the seventh judgment doesn't unveil seven more judgments. This is the last judgment in the series of seven. And the angel poured out his bowl and out to the temple. And there came a loud voice saying, It is done. And again, with flashes of lightnings and peals of thunder and rumblings and a severe earthquake. No earthquake has ever occurred like it before. And Asia Minor in the Middle East at that day knew they were very well acquainted with earthquakes. And since mankind is on the earth, so tremendous was the quake. In other words, this event is so world shattering. That when it happens, it literally The Bible says it this way, the great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. We would say it this way, the world just falls all to pieces. There's nothing to hold it up anymore. There's nothing to secure it. There's nothing to stabilize it. There's nothing to give it hope except Jesus Christ. He's still on the throne. Now you say, why does God judge? You say, why does God judge? God judges because, number one, he's holy and he judges the sins of the world. He rewards the faithful, judges the sinner. Two roads, two paths, and you clearly choose which path you want to go on. The path of blessing or the path that is not not so good. He also judges to vindicate his people. He, he judges, in essence, so that the world knows, Satan knows, his followers know, that your faith in his Son, Jesus Christ, was not wasted, was not empty, was not in vain. And that your faith mattered. Remember the, the, the three I had standing and your works do follow them? What you do matters. And So this isn't some angry, out of control, maniacal guy who's just waiting to spew out wrath on the earth. Every, after every plague, I believe, after every trumpet judgment and sealed judgment and bold judgment, I believe that if anyone wanted to repent and accept Christ as Savior and, and proclaim the name of Jesus, I think God would have gladly received them in the kingdom of grace. Not everybody holds that position. I'm fine with that. I'm just simply saying that God has always extended grace through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's the good news of the gospel. And matter of fact, when you get into chapter 17 and 18, and then where we'll be at Sunday morning, with the great white throne judgment, all of heaven, all of creation, all people of every land, of every nation, of every language, and of every people, sing his praise Hallelujah, hallelujah. It is a hail to the victor moment, man. They are going crazy because judgment is complete. Satan has been defeated and Christ is still on the throne. That's where we'll be Sunday morning. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes?